The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. I was able mostly to fly out Friday evening, play the shows over the weekend and fly back Sunday night and then be back at the office. That's just what, like, an incredible lifestyle, but exhausting, surely. It, it was exhausting, but mind you, no, no more exhausting than just being a lawyer. Your weekends aren't your own anyway, are they? It's not like you go home and don't work at the weekends. I mean, that would be a crazy suggestion. In today's episode, incredibly, we're talking to Dave Roundtree, who is the drummer in Blur. How did you go from being in one of the biggest British bands to becoming a criminal solicitor? It's just bonkers. Dave was an incredibly charming man, um, clearly passionate about the law, about justice uh, in many ways, about doing the right thing. But we talked about his life in the band uh, from the early years, uh, right the way through to being down in the criminal courts, in the police stations, acting for clients, um, the state of legal aid. He's got a lot to say. The hearing. So Dave, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, the first question that somebody might ask is, why the hell are you talking to Dave Roundtree from Blur um, on a legal podcast? So I'm going to leave you to explain a little bit about why we're doing that. Well, I assume because uh, one of the many forks of my many forked careers <laughs> has been that I trained as a solicitor and worked as a, a criminal solicitor for a, a number of years. So, yes, I should imagine, I should imagine that's what you that's, want. That's the reason I'll talk about anything. But I'd love to sit here and talk to you about Blur. Um, <laughs> and I could do that for longer. I'm not sure people will listen. Well, I'm sure they would, but maybe not on this podcast. Um, so, uh, so, so when was that? When did you... What, what inspired you to think... Hang on a minute, I've just been playing drums around the world, uh, selling millions of records. I want to be a criminal solicitor and presumably do some legal aid work. Well, I fell into it really like I kind of fall into everything <laughs> in life. I think that really that of all my the varied things I've done, the only one that I've ever thought I must honestly, I must pursue that agenda. It's yeah. when the first time I met Damon and I thought, mm, yeah, he's somebody a bit special. Wow. I'm going to have to kind of nail myself to him somehow, staple myself to his head somehow, <laughs> so that as he uh, rises, I rise with him. All, pretty much everything else in my, in my, all my other kind of spokes of my career have been uh, things I've sort of fallen into for one reason or another. Mm. And law was much the same, really. I was, uh, Sounds such a cliche to say, but I was sort of turning 40. Yeah. And I was starting to think, God, haven't I really wasted my life? You know, haven't I really say this. hitting things for a living? Isn't that such a trivial <laughs> thing to do? Which just because it isn't, you know, music, I think music has the power to reach into people's lives and transform them in genuinely meaningful ways. Yeah. But doesn't it just goes to show how crazy these thoughts are that, you know, we all have and, uh, and, uh, how really life is always green on the other side of the fence. Mm. But uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's the grass that's greener. <laughs> that's but, the uh, so I was having a bit of a meltdown. Some things in my life were changing, you mm. know. And, uh, and the reality is playing music is an odd... The, the lifestyle is an odd lifestyle, you mm. know. that there's uh, Especially as you become successful, you, bec you retreat further and further into this kind of nucleus of the the musicians and the people immediately surrounding them. Mm. And, you know, I certainly found that in the studio, there was very little sense of that kind of good that the music you make is doing in the world. Because mm. it's just the four of us. It's isolated. The, yeah, yeah, the four of us and the producer and maybe a couple of other people. Mm. And that's all you would, all the, the only people you, you would see for months on end. Mm. And then out on tour, 
it, again, it's a very different thing, you know. I mean, we're on stage, you, you see the audience there, they're very excited. Yeah. You know, you hit something, they scream. Yeah. There's a kind of, it, it doesn't seem entirely <laughs> appropriate to the level of intensity that you're doing, the kind of reaction you're getting. It's kind of, it's it's very odd. And and while it that, it's my favourite thing to do ever, performing on stage, yeah. it's it can be, it can feel that it's not nourishing your soul while it's kind of satisfying your ego. It's not nourishing your soul particularly. <laughs> does, it, does it feel quite remote, that, that can do, gap? yes. Um, in, in, especially on the big stages like Glastonbury, mm. you can play the play the gig and not even really have seen the audience. Yeah. So it's a kind of, it's different if you're the singer and you're standing at the front, but the drummer at the back, you can feel a bit remote from the, from the action. Mm. So um, and stuck in one place as well, I guess. That, that's is, yeah, is that that's not too it? bad though, because you've got as a drummer, you have a barrier in front of you, so that's oh, compensated. Yeah. You know, the fact that you're uh, that makes it a bit easier to deal with. And I'm not the kind of person that can stand at the front of the stage, hold my hands in the air, say, "Look at me, everyone! Look at me! Shout now!" <laughs> <laughs> though actually, probably these days I am more like that. But yeah, right. as when I was. As, when I was younger, yeah, having the barrier there compensated mm. for the fact that I wasn't kind of up the front having the adulation. Mm. So anyway, I was, I was, due to a long chain of circumstances, I'm the one in the band that knows, that goes to all the legal meetings, the accountancy meetings, because uh, years ago we got ripped off classic kind of manager. Uh, is this and, pre-Blur uh, or is this... No, this is Blur, Blur, yeah, the okay. first album. Yeah, we signed to him and uh, he put he stole all that money put mm. everything in his wife's name and then declared bankruptcy so uh, this is one of my uh, this is going to be a later question yeah, for you, oh, but, well, let's talk uh, about it now this, then. You know, a little bit this, <laughs> uh, I, I'm musicians and, and artists generally more savvy now do you think about the legals the sort of their rights uh, ownership over music particularly um, or, or do you think there's more of a there's, there's still this desire, this ambition to get into music or into, into the arts generally, uh, creative industries. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about your other creative industries too. Yeah. But do you, do you think that that ambition's still there? And in the likes of, well, we've now got YouTube, uh, Make Creating Stars, we've got the X Factor going on and Voice and all these others. Um, do the rights, do, do uh, individual rights, still get put on the sideline at the start of your career? Is it something you only develop an idea about over time still? Um, I think most musicians still have only a, a fairly sketchy idea of uh, what the legal basis for mm. their career is, to be honest. Is that the naivety of youth or just um, over overwhelming ambition? Half... Half the kind of idea that it doesn't really matter because if I'm famous, if, if everything will be brilliant. Mm. If I'm not famous, there won't be any money anyway. Yeah. So yeah. And the other half being that it's a it's a fundamentally quite a boring issue and only seems to have a tangential kind of uh, a tangential kind of uh, influence on uh, mm. on things anyway. You know, you sign a publishing deal, you could do that without understanding. How publishing copyrights work. Mm. You know, you sign an agreement that uh, you probably haven't read, and somebody gives you a check. You know that that's yeah. the, you can get through life with that understanding. I mean, how many people read the when they buy a house? How many yeah. people re- read the terms of the standard <laughs> law society? <laughs> but, but, but we, we are lawyers, right? We've all put our hands up. <laughs> I get that. Outside this room, in the wider public, how yeah, many people no, you're right. know? You know, like I just bought a house, and. Uh, 
and it came as a surprise to the bloke I bought it off that he wasn't allowed to uh, leave the front door lock broken, uh, yeah. leave light, take lights away, and leave wires dangling from the. Had he read the contract? He'd have known that, you know, and I wouldn't have had to explain it to him patiently. Yeah, so, but you, uh, with, with something like that, you you have to have some legal advice. Um, that, that's, that's the rules. Yes. Um, when you're signing a publishing deal, do you get some legal advice? Do you have to go out and source it? Does the record company say, oh, hang on a minute, we know these guys who will just sign it off for you? Was there any... No, nobody, nobody's cavalier like that That uh, that on the industry side. Mm. They have money, they don't have to be cavalier. But... Mm. Uh, Unless they really want you, if they really want you to sign the deal, they will pay your legal fees okay. and then charge it back to you as an advance, a royalty <laughs> advance. Yeah. But if they don't want you, then you're responsible for your own legal fees. You have to. The, one of the clauses of the contract says, "I have ha- had legal advice, yeah. so that yeah. the uh, other party is covered." So back to bargaining so positions. You may, you many people may or may not have had legal advice on it, and the the, the value of that legal advice, I think, is uh, is. Uh, it's often uh, questionable anyway, mm. because it is such an imbalance of power in the in the music industry. I mean, the, the person you're signing the contract with has got something you desperately want yeah. and would yeah. do anything to get, you know. So, uh, so what, what, if the legal advice is, but, this isn't a very good contract, you're the, I don't care, I don't care, I don't, I don't care, where do I sign, where do I sign, yeah. I don't care. Yeah, 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 you're absolutely right. <laughs> and, and, and I imagine, well, you've learned, you've learned the hard way. <laughs> Oh, back then you did. Yes. Well, I mean, what we what I learned was something rather different. I learned that uh, those boring meetings were actually actually uh, could could save my bacon, mm. and so I became the one that turned up to all of those things, and uh, and to the point now. Whereas if a contract hasn't got my signature on, the others won't sign it because oh, really? if it hasn't got my signature on, they know I haven't read it. So you're the union rat so, fiddler, is that? Yeah. Well, I'm the uh, token sober driver kind of thing. <laughs> what would you call that? The nominated driver. No, right, yeah. the nominated. Yeah. Designated. Uh, designated. Designated lawyer. Yeah, I'm because... the designated lawyer. <laughs> so, uh, well, okay. So I get, I get all that. Yeah, I get all that. And and we might talk a little bit later. If we've got time yeah. about copyrights and, and and digital music and all these other things. But let, let me take it back a little bit. Um, all this is going on. You're, yeah. you're sort of in, in this in the music world. Criminal law. Yeah. Um, like, the, 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 why, why not go down an IP route, a commercial route? Um, well, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll finish my story, and you will understand a hundred percent. So, uh, because I'm the designated, I was all, I've always been the designated contract reader in the band. Um, I end up knowing all the lawyers and the, the accountants and everybody. So they're all mates of mine. So. Um, um, while I was having this kind of midlife meltdown, yeah. I was happened to be sitting opposite a lawyer, our lawyer called Richard Bray, having lunch with him and telling him all this stuff about, oh, I've wasted my life. You know, you can imagine the expression he had on his face, the kind of <laughs> patient but barely concealed kind of uh, <laughs> irritation. He remembers he was paying the bill. That's what it was. <laughs> and uh, so he said, well, when he... he uh, once to become a lawyer since he was a kid and mm. so the, his his uh, grandfather was quite a famous lawyer in his day okay. so he went to see his grandfather and said I'm thinking of being a lawyer what do you think I should do and the grandfather said well what you should do is go and sit in the old bailey for two weeks Yeah, he said go sit in the public galleries uh, by the end of that two weeks you'll know whether or not you'll you're actually want to be a lawyer. So mm. he said, I passed that on to you. Go and sit in the public galleries for two weeks. So I did. I uh, took two weeks out of my schedule, uh, parked my phone and uh, went into the Old Bailey, yeah. made friends with the court staff there, yeah. which, I, which uh, turns out is always, always a good idea. Absolutely. 
And uh, so they, they, I explained to them what I was doing. So they pulled me in and out of the courts and, you know, when the, the defendants were giving evidence or when interesting things were going on. Yeah. And uh, so they were incredibly helpful, I have incredible to say. experience. And uh, funnily enough, by the end, at the end of the two weeks, I, I went back to see the chief clerk there and said, thanks very much. And he said, you're not, uh, you're not somebody famous, are you? <laughs> I said, he said, I knew it. You're Chris Evans, aren't oh, you? No. He said, Can you sign my autograph oh, book? No. And to my eternal shame, you and did. the foundation of my legal career is based on a lie. I wrote, Best wishes, Chris Evans. No. X. <laughs> so, anyway, I, then I went back to my uh, lawyer friend and said, I'm going to come back to this point as well yes. in another moment. So, I, got, I was, by the end of that, I was not only, did not only I know that uh, the law was insanely, the criminal law at least was insanely interesting, I knew that uh, I, I was hooked and obsessed on it in a way that I sometimes get hooked mm-hmm. and obsessed with things. So, I went back to my lawyer friend. And uh, gushing about the, all the exciting things I'd seen and how brilliant it all was, so he said, "Well, what the, the um, guy I went to law school with, he's now the the senior partner at a firm in the East End, which is Edward Fowler, Bradshaw and Watson." Ah, okay. So he said, "Go and have a chat with him. Maybe you can uh, point you in the right direction." So when I had a chat with him, he said, "Well, it's all well and good seeing what goes on in court. We should see what we do day to day." He said, "Yeah, spend a week shadowing one of our solicitors, which is a." brilliant lawyer called Chilla Keshvari. Mm. It's been a week with her and uh, again, by the end of it, you'll have a better idea of uh, what you'd be letting yourself in for. So I did. I uh, shadowed her for a week. We went into prisons, courts, police stations, yeah. you know, client meetings, all the usual stuff. All around the East End? All over London, yes. Uh, actually, when I say client meetings, uh, that was probably the best lesson of all because we had a client meeting the client didn't turn up and said, <laughs> this is criminal law. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So the end of that, I went back to Paul and said, uh, count me in. He said, all right, well, turn up Monday morning then. So wow. uh, I turned up Monday morning and uh, and then there was a big uh, criminal case underway. Was, uh, the murder of a policewoman, contract killing of a policewoman right. by her husband. Oh, I think the contract killer. So uh, we were... We were Defending or the firm was defending uh, one of there's a four handed case. The firm was defending one of them, and it, we thought it was going to rest on uh, on uh, mobile phone evidence. We thought that was going to be the key, yeah. and that the prosecution had served a six in one and more of a foot high pile of A three sheets of paper. They hadn't bothered to serve it electronically because that would make it too easy for the defence. They'd served it, yeah, in, uh, massive great pieces of paper, yeah. On the assumption that we weren't going to be doing anything with it, so uh, I uh, digitised it all and uh, reduced it into into its essential form to try and see if, if, if anything turned on it, which the prosecution clearly thought something did. Mm. But uh, anyway, then I was in back at the Old Bailey for three months, looking after our client, and it was the craziest case I've ever seen. At the time, I thought that's what life was like at the Old Bailey, but it, all of the things that uh, that you see on TV that never actually happen in court happened. You know, like somebody broke down on the witness stand and kind of recounted their things. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. It was like being in the middle of this most amazing drama. In stark contrast to my later career in the magistrate's court. <laughs> <laughs> it was like being in 
being in, I don't know, play school or something, a kind of nightmare version of play school. But uh, anyway, it was just wonderful. One of the best periods of my life, actually. In, in play school, who was the judge then? Humpty, probably. But but that's not... You, you were searching through documents. Um, yeah. You weren't given any special treatment there. That's, no, a, that's, a, that's donkey work. Um, yeah, no, I, I would, wouldn't have taken it if they'd have offered me special treatment. So I, I was there for, I don't know, I was there for a couple of years, maybe. And uh, I did the police station course. Yeah. So um, then I was in and out of the police station mm. pretty much every day. Mm. And uh, on the night shift on Tuesday nights, which was wonderful. Absolutely loved it. Terrifying, though, in the police station. Mm. Like, everybody hates you in the police yeah. station. The client hates you. The police hate you. Yeah. You know, the firm hates you. Well, you don't. <laughs> you know, it's like you've got to negotiate your way through. Uh, try and... It, try and the, the client is probably coming down from heroin withdrawals, yeah. you know, and uh, just wants bail so he can go out and score, or she. And, uh, yeah. you know, has just been in Tesco's robbing some packets of meat in order to score drugs, you know, and pissed himself probably, you know. It's just, it's just absolutely, you see a side of life that uh, that most people wouldn't dream actually exists. There's an underclass and they're all based around our insane drug laws mm. um, that are but, just churned through the legal system time after time after time. But did your uh, rock and roll career not prepare you in some way for, for that sort <laughs> of uh, reception? Well, in in a way it did. In the, in the way that fundamentally pretty much all of the things I've done, while they seem like they might be technical jobs. They're actually people mm. jobs. Yeah. And being able to negotiate and being able to see somebody else's side, being able to deal with difficult people, mm. all of those you learn as mm. a musician and all of those stand you in good stead in other people's jobs. Um, especially, yeah, especially actually having, as a lawyer, Having had, having bought and sold a house, you yeah. know, having signed a contract, I had when I finally went to law school to train as a solicitor, I had mm. head and shoulders above everybody else, mm. you know, life experience. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. When they were talking about, you know, these property rights and things, I knew what they were talking about. Yeah. You know, I didn't have to have the lecturer draw a diagram on the board. You know, I'd, I'd already done that. So, uh, how did you feel at law school? Because typically, um, yeah. in, my, in my experience, that there's a lot of twenty-somethings uh, yeah. coming through. Um, often, well, not often. Sometimes with jobs at the end of it. Sometimes yeah. not so much. Um, uh, often a big cohort of people from one particular firm there, old friends already. <clears throat> um, how how did you fit in around that? As in, not only as a mature student at the time, but but as uh, in loose terms, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but also uh, as somebody from Blair. Yeah, I, I well on the, I, at the by the time I started doing that, actually the band was just starting up again. Okay, so that, it was all it was quite uh, difficult to fit in mm. the two things, mm. you know. Particularly coming I, from without having a law degree, I imagine that that makes it even harder. Yeah. Well, I had to learn how to write essays again. I knew mm. I could see immediately that was going to be a problem, and mm. I've never had any problems writing essays at school. I hadn't mm. written one since, and I, I did go to university, but did computer science. Yeah. So there wasn't a, there wasn't a, only a single essay to write. 
there. And law essays so, aren't typically the most uh, most friendly to read either. No. So I I uh, did two things. First of all, I did I took I had to, I had the summer before I started law school, so I did an open university course. I, in fact, I did the first year of their law degree. Oh wow! Which you do a law a law mm. module and then uh, two other modules of choice, whatever yeah. you like. So I just did a couple of essay arts based essay okay. subjects. So that was that got me writing essays, you mm. know, <laughs> daily basically to to finish that in the time available and. Uh, and second, I th- I, I uh, subscribed to one of the one of the criminal law journals yep. and just started reading all the judgments oh, really? out of it. Yeah, to kind of uh, get the hang of that. And it was all it was kind of you know it could have been written in Latin for the sense it made of when course. I started. But by the end, I started to get the hang of it and started mm. to see how the judgments were structured and see how the language, how they used language and the the kind of the different take on kind of precision of language I was going to have to need so I didn't go into it blind so while I didn't have a law degree under my belt um, and and nobody on the GDL of course had a law degree under their belt Mm. so it was a conversion Mm. course but uh, I didn't come uh, you know I I was satisfied by the time I started I was going to be able to do it yeah yeah, that, that satisfaction evaporated after the end of the first week, and I realised what the hell I'd let myself in for. It gets easier for that. Uh, yes, for that. Secondly, the LPC was uh, such a breath of fresh air. Yeah. I imagined on the GDL, I was going to be kind of sitting there, you know, sipping coffee with my uh, <laughs> colleagues, discussing the finer points of yeah. jurisprudence. You know, mm. and actually, it's like drinking from a fire hose. Incredible quantity of work. Yeah. And somebody advised me on the way in, just do exactly what they say. Mm. If you try and do it your own way, mm. you're screwed. Mm. Just whatever they say to do, just do it. Don't argue. But having having had that previous <laughs> life, that's hard to do. Uh, that is going back and following the rules and regulations and, and, and just being back at school. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not you're okay with I'm that? I'm not one of the wild bunch. I'm not <laughs> kicking against society. I'm not somebody who who uh, has a grudge against authority. Okay, good. Well, uh, bring us up to speed because, um, so that was, so, so you qualified. Um, qualified, yeah. And then and I got a job at uh, Kingsley Napley. To do, to, well, to do, to do criminal crime. law, but yeah. presumably other things around that at the same time uh, to just tick off the training boxes. Yes, yeah, so I did, I did a, a training contract there. So I did, uh, I did uh, employment law. Oh, well done. I good did choice. commercial litigation. And I did uh, private client. Yes, that's right. Okay, good. So good, important. So yeah, yeah. Um, actually, that again, God, thank God I had because that set me in good stead. I mean, all of those things that you that don't seem to make any sense at law school, they put into yeah, like equity and stuff. What the hell is that? You know. Yeah, so all, all, all your all your uh, wealth is now set up in trust. So, uh, <laughs> we're not seeing the Panama Papers anytime well, soon. I hope it was interesting to see how that worked. I mean. I never, I I never did that. I did a few charities and things like that, and mm. I did a lot of wills. Mm. But I never did any of that kind of hiding your money offshore stuff. But I, people came in because the the, the firm is the, is the kind of archetypal high net worth client firm. Yeah. So we were constantly getting people through the door trying to pitch their dodgy <laughs> schemes to us, and to see how that worked was very very interesting. Yeah. And you know, they were very clever people. The people yeah. setting this stuff of up, of course. And, uh, Until the court, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the law has changed now to, to 
to me, it's a, you know you have to declare all that stuff from the off, and it's yeah. assumed to be nonsense unless the HMRC explicitly say it's not nonsense. Yes. So yeah. things have things have changed a bit since I did that. But still, that was the dying days of that, where the schemes were getting ever more complicated. So over at Kingsley Napoli, were you moving further away from legal aid work, or was that still very much the the bread and butter? Well, uh, Kingsley Napoli did have a legal aid contract, but uh, um, it wasn't that wasn't the bread and butter of the firm. Yeah, yeah. it was uh, mostly private. Practice. And the sort of work that you were doing at the time was that a mix of both as well. You saw, well, you saw no, I, I was doing the general crime, the, okay. the, 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 the new boys and girls at the, at the firm. Again, no special to, treatment. No, no, asking again, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have accepted it if it had been offered. You mm. know, I didn't want to end up with a kind of pony yeah. kind of uh, understanding of how it all worked. Yeah. You know, I believe in paying your dues. Good. But, uh, um, yeah, so I was back to the police stations, really, because I was the mm. only one qualified to do that. <laughs> so... Me and one of the partners were the two people with who'd done the police station course. So everybody else was kind of, you know, would get reps in to yeah. do the police station yeah. work. But I was like, no, I'll do it. I'm fine, I don't mind. And so how, for how long were you doing that after qualifying? Uh, I was there a couple of years, mm. know, three years, three years, I think. Yes. And it was all, the, the band was then up and running again. Mm. So it really, by a kind of uh, poor, poor... Uh, set of coincidences everything kind of collided as everything always yeah. does so uh, but while in the well, especially while I was doing the training the, mm. the band was doing we were we hadn't released an album and so we were just doing some in, interesting shows yeah we'd done a couple of little tours and so that nowadays for a band at our level that means mm. festivals mm. by and large mm. um, so and the work I was doing that wasn't at the festival, so obviously the weekends. So, you know, I was able mostly to fly out Friday evening, play the shows over the weekend, and fly back Sunday night and then be back at the office. That's just what, like, an incredible lifestyle, but exhausting, surely. It, it was exhausting, but mind you, no, no more exhausting than just being a lawyer. Well, yeah. It's just exhausting. It, it around be. that. And uh, you don't, your weekends aren't your own anyway, are they? It's not like you <laughs> go home and don't work at the weekends. I mean, that would be a crazy suggestion. So, uh, then, yeah, by the end of the third year, I think, of Kingsley Lapley, mm. and I'd gone in saying, at some point we're going to make an album and then this probably isn't going to be sustainable anymore. Yeah. I'm going to need to take some time off. So uh, um, that, that point came and, uh, and uh, yeah, I did take some time off, which I've never, I've never quite gone back. Yeah. I still got my dad's sort of stuff there. Yeah. Is it just sat in the corner of the room where just be picked up? They do contact me from time to time, James. <laughs> so, so what's the, so what's the, let's go on, what's the plan? Because um, now, uh, move from uh, music, well, computers, uh, to music, to law, uh, with a bit of music again in between, <clears throat> and now politics. Well, I'm a, I'm a local councillor, so I'm not, uh, I don't have a career in politics. I'm an elected politician, yes. but uh, it's not like I'm an MP or anything. So, so, so how, how's your time filled nowadays, if you're not, a, not down at the police station? I should have, well, I should have kept up doing the police stations, you know, that would have been the sensible plan. Mm. But you can get back into but, it, can you? Yeah, yeah, you can get back into it, but uh, that would have been a good way of keeping my eye in yeah. and of kind of grounding me. But uh, yeah, my days at the moment, I, I, 
I do mo- mostly music. Mm. Uh, I do uh, music, film, and TV, and uh, I'm working on a my much delayed solo album. Oh, really? Five year delayed oh, solo album, but. Uh, because many times started, never finished. Because so, each uh, each of your bandmates has gone on to do quite different things as well, from cheese making, <coughs> farm. Uh, I know Graham Cox has been doing the film, the, the TV work as well. Um, yeah, very successfully. Yeah. Uh, uh, now I've got a slightly risky question to ask you, which yeah, is: sure. Damon went off and um, formed this animated band. But yes, you've got an animation background. How, how did that yes. come about? Uh, again, I fell into it really. I was, how old? I was maybe 25, mm. and my hobby used to be drinking, and that got <laughs> to be unsustainable, so I stopped drinking and uh, suddenly found myself with all this time and an inability to sleep at night. Uh. So uh, I picked up a lot of things there. I tried a lot of things. I mm. thought, well, uh, it's, it's my, I'm going to a very boring life. I'll just go home, you know, don't replace that, that hobby with something else. I did a, a variety of things, one of which was uh, I learned to fly airplanes. Another which <laughs> Not a night, hopefully. Was, uh, <laughs> no, another of the nights I spent, I was always interested by computer animation, ever since Toy Story, how that might mm. work. So I, uh, when I couldn't sleep, I found that incredibly frustrating. My, 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 cope, my coping mechanism was, I discovered, really, just to not lie there getting increasingly frustrated I couldn't sleep but to get up and to do something mm. it turned out those those kind of hours in the morning between three and six o'clock or three and five o'clock are incredibly productive you can't sleep yeah boy can you get I stuff I don't tend to find now so uh, um, but you know there was no sacrifice I wasn't sleeping anyway I wasn't waking up rested I was waking up you mm. know just as unrested if I actually mm. did something useful with those hours as if I didn't yeah so um, I taught myself computer animation over that wow. time and I had you, you you could have the patience and the the kind of uh, um, the, well, the time I suppose to, to do something incredibly detailed like that and not be going Christ you know mm. I've got it I've got it because there's nothing you got to do you know mm. there's nothing else to do so I was able to as well as learning that how the software worked and how animation works I've got a load of DVDs and and uh, of uh, in fact, there were probably VHS cassettes in those days. A fan of uh, classic kind of Warner Brothers animation, just kind yeah. of went through it frame by frame wow. to see how the how the artists had done what they'd done, and it was not easy on VHS. <laughs> not easy on VHS. A lot of pause button. No, um, but but well, that's actually, I had a VHS that you could flick forward frame by frame, but of course the frames were a bit kind of. So you had the cash. You had the cash by then. That's the difference. So, but yeah, that's but the rock star lifestyle. A VHS player with a, a flame, frame by frame. Uh, but but you back to only dream of that. You know, you back to the rules and regulations though about how how animation works and the processes are involved. In some I ways, have no idea who you think I am. I mean, I'm a bloody <laughs> lawyer. Lots of isn't there? Of course, I'm, of course, the rule. If I was, if rules and rules and regulations were anathema to me I'd hardly become a solicitor would I well, well I'm not one of these people that threw TVs out of the window I, I don't you know there are two kinds of drummers really there are those kind of that secretly want to be the front man incredibly frustrated mm. and so they live these weirdly destructive lives and there are the others who are drummers because they want to be happy at the, the back yeah. and I've always been that's that's what I am you know I'm not somebody who 
And 99.9% of musicians aren't throwing TV out the window, mm. smashing the system mm. kind of people because actually it doesn't suit the musical temperament particularly well. You actually learning to play an instrument well is about thousands of hours of study, of meticulous study. But it's, when, and then it's not about kind of just feeling it, man. I'm just, I'm just going to blow for the soul. But, Actually, but, it doesn't work like that. You say I this. Think it does. You say it this, but, but there are some stories knocking around. Dave, like you, you've lived, you've lived a lifestyle, um, and we know for a fact that you're masquerading as Chris Evans around the place. Now, <laughs> when you're signing the Lost Sightest Form Around character, uh, how confident were you in ticking that box? <laughs> well, I don't. Last, I suppose, at, at worst. <laughs> it's telling a lie, which turns out isn't illegal. It's not, it's not. It's amazing how many people that come to consult a lawyer, though, have no idea that lying isn't illegal. They think because their neighbour has told a lie, they somehow have a legal claim against them. <laughs> true, true, true. Um, well, in my case, they're employed. Um, but, but when, when you uh, when, when you sat around, uh, I'm thinking particularly of um, this story about the Brit Awards, 1996, Michael Jackson's on stage, Jarvis jumps up, does what he does. Um, now, the story I've heard is that Bob Mortimer went down to the police station with him to represent him. Have you, uh, have you been called upon in any, any way like that yet? I've heard that story too. I don't know if it's true, but that, certainly Bob Mortimer was a, mm. qualified in some way to do that. But so far, you've not been called up uh, at some glamorous glittering awards ceremony or around the back at Glastonbury. Well, musicians don't get arrested terribly often, actually. People who get arrested most often are poor people. Yeah. Minorities. Yeah. Uh, people who've been arrested already. Uh, it's not, it ain't terribly fair. Mm. You know, the, the people in the 60s that threw TVs out of hotel mm. windows didn't get arrested. It's true. You know, it's, it's often, nine times out of ten in my experience, and I've seen both sides of the coin, it's... Uh, Either people who are who have some underlying issue that for some reason is criminalised, mm. or it's people who just got in out of their depths. They've got into a situation, typically through making a mm. bad decision early mm. on, like those airline pilot, like those kind of air crash investigation mm. programs. You know, where they'll take off, they flitch the wrong switch. Yeah. You know, twenty minutes later, they're ploughing into the side of a mountain with all the kind of lights flashing, going, "What's going on?" That's that's what most of the most of the non-alcoholic slash junkie people I've dealt with, you know, they took some poor decision early on. Mm. Even that, even the drug addicts, you know, they took some poor, poor decision early on, which was to mm. try mm. heroin. Mm. Well, I'll just do it once, you know. But do you see that that's changing? Six later, they're um, in jail. I was, I was going to talk to you. Um, I was going to talk to you briefly about uh, Cliff Richard, who, of course, was arrested. Um, a, a, a pop star's now fair game. No, I don't think so. Um, I'm not saying no pop stars ever get arrested, but in general, the the kind of bad behaviour that might land a mm. poor person in yeah. jail doesn't land a rich person in jail. Yeah. You know, um, and that is fundamentally unfair. You know, the Cliff Richard case was a whole different ballgame. Mm. Uh, I'm going to push you a little bit further on this because yeah. we know that songs have been written um, by incredibly successful, famous, well-regarded bands about things that they may or may not have got up to um, whilst being in the band. And so far, um, fortunately for them, uh, no suggestions of anyone coming out of the woodwork uh, claiming any, any, anything against them for misconduct, um, sexual or otherwise. 
Um, again, do you think that's the, the protection of being rich and famous? Well, it'd be unwise to say anything specific about a no, specific no, sure band, you know what I mean? But, you know, you have to have a, there has to be a complaint before a criminal mm. case starts. So if mm. there's no complaint, there won't be a case. Mm. But uh, speaking more generally, you know, mm. if you're a heroin addict, what options are open to you, given that you, by the time you're an addict, whether it's your fault or not, which is a kind of a political point or a moral point, or yeah. it certainly isn't a legal point, by the time you become an addict, what options are available to you, given that you have no choice mm. because you're an addict, mm. but to have more heroin? What mm. are you going to do? Mm. The way we've uh, structured our society, mm. you have no choice, as far as I can see, unless uh, unless you have money, but to engage in some kind of criminal behaviour, because uh, by definition, you're not going to be able to hold down a job. Mm. You know, you you will have borrowed money off everyone that you can possibly borrow money from. You know, you'll have stolen yeah. money from your parents. You'll have done, you know, blah, 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 blah. At the end, you, you'll be homeless. Mm. There'll be no friendly direction to go. Mm. And then when you're caught, you're reliant on the system again to, to support you. Um, there's, been, there's been a ton of, uh, of uh, research done, as you can imagine, on, on this, mm. this and related issues. And there was a trial done in Switzerland a few years ago where uh, they set up a clinic and they said, anyone who wants any drugs, come and get them. They're mm. here, they're free. But to get them, mm. you had to take them there. You couldn't take them away with you. Yeah. And you had to engage with the various uh, government services first in order to do it. So yeah. you, know, you had to be inspected, be inspected. You had to be examined by a doctor. You mm. had to, you know, social services had to come around and mm. check your children if you had any weren't... Uh, being harmed by all of this and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, that seems to me a very humane and sensible solution, mm. given that every other way that we've tried to tackle this problem has has worked. And this kind of default we're in, where we where we blame the addicts themselves. Yeah. And so anything that happens to them is their own fault in a way that uh, we don't, uh, you know, we don't blame people who've, uh, who are getting divorced. We don't say, well, it's your own stupid fault, get divorced, I'm going to help you. Mm. You know, there are divorce courts set up, there are kind of services, there are counselling, there are, you know, we pump money into these things as a, as a, as a country, mm. as a society. And, and it's difficult to do that from behind the drums. Uh, it's difficult to do that even being a counsellor. Um, to do what? To, to, to make that change. To, yes. to to put the money where the money needs to be. To uh, to, to restructure society and, and the support services around it. You need to be down in Downing Street for that. Certainly <clears throat> in Westminster. Um, are, are there any plans? I don't. For you? I, honestly, I don't think if I became an MP, it would have any effect whatsoever. There really? are plenty of MPs who are on side with all of this stuff. Mm. I think change will come, and it will come quite quickly in the way that change is coming in America mm. and uh, it will come when people are just fed up to the back teeth with uh, the situation we've created for ourselves mm. and, and um, you know when the general public has an appetite to change things change will happen quite naturally yeah. but uh, the politicians I think are hamstrung by public opinion and public opinion is uh, shepherded by some quite evil forces as far as I can see around these kind of mm. issues 
in the, 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 the idea that the poor deserve to be poor is deeply ingrained in our society and very convenient yeah. for us with some money, you yeah. know, because we don't have to feel bad about it. We don't have to feel like we have any responsibilities associated with it because they're poor because they choose to be poor. Mm. And they get off their asses and not be poor, mm. you know, so that's, that's a fundamentally evil opinion, I think, and but one that's ingrained right. quite deeply in our society, mm. and in our media, in our newspapers and... Mm the BBC, the, all of the kind of establishment yeah. outlets kind of, uh, it's, it's assumed in everything they say and everything they do. But what people do have is music uh, to, to transform them, to take them away <laughs> from all of this uh, misery. Yeah, well, um, some, some uh, consolation to the heroin addicts, I tell you. I'm, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, it, it might yes, be a consolation to jail. So here's a little tune. Yeah, you can tap your foot to it. You can whistle it on your way to jail. <laughs> So I'm not giving you an inch, am I? You're not giving me anything. Um, but, but, but it is transformative. And, and yeah. it does have the power to change lives. You, you, you've already, you've already admitted it. You've already conceded, you've already that, conceded that, that. Thank you. I should, you. I should, I should I talk to you about and, 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 and I'm sure, um, as, as a criminal lawyer as well, you have transformed lives and changed lives. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious to know what, what's next for you. Um, is, is there another blur reunion temporary cessation of the hiatus due anytime soon uh, your own music you've talked about uh, a new album fantastic anything else uh, well we should see you know I don't there, there are no plans for uh, for more blur work at the moment mm. but uh, none of us have ruled that out so I'll, I'll keep myself if I don't ask so I'm not expecting to see you um, on a Saturday night at Glastonbury this year no, well, no, no, no. They've they booked all of those bands already. Okay. All of that gets booked way before Christmas. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Having said that, um, I mean, God knows, you know, as there are no plans to play Glastonbury, but uh, there are never any plans. We're not a band that has plans. So what tends to happen is somebody has an interesting idea. We happen to have some availability and, and we do it, you know. So that's how the last few things have gone. Amazing. I mean, the, the first one, the, the first kind of big show we played was when they were starting off these uh, shows in Hyde Park. Hyde Park, for example, uh, was 2012. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, I think it was 2009 was the first one. Right. And they just, just had an idea to do this series of concerts. Mm. You know, they wanted to kind of iconic, this is how they sold it to us. You know, they London used lots bands. of big words, <laughs> lots of flowery compliments. An iconic <laughs> London band to kind of kick this thing off, you know, kind of uh, make, make it, uh, establish it as a kind of summer tradition. So... Use words like that. You can't turn that kind of thing down. Can you? Well, well, you say that. Once you've read the once read the small print now, Dave, you're, you're, uh, you, 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 can, you can you can't turn it down. But um, fantastic. Look, thank you, and uh, um, we hope to get you back sometime into practice. I'm sure, and I'm sure there'll be some people, heroin addicts or otherwise, who will be more than happy to have you represent them. Um, fantastic. Look, there's so much more I could talk about, but we, we are stuck for time. So I'm going to say thank you. Uh, best of luck with the future um, down over in the council but also in the studio and looking forward to hearing more from you The Hearing I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast please like us or just follow and subscribe we also want your feedback so rate and review us or get in touch using the hashtag The Hearing Podcast The Hearing a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters to find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.